If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 136. Psalm 136, a psalm of someone we don't know, but a good psalm, nonetheless, because God was ultimately the author. In 70 AD, Titus Vespasian conquered Jerusalem. He wiped out, or more literally wiped off the Temple Mount and pushed all of the temple and all of the Jewish structures into a small valley called the Tyropene Valley and reduced the city to ashes. Later on, all of the Jewish holy sites were destroyed and pagan uh, shrines and and idol-worshipping centers were erected in all of the Jewish holy sites. This was a common practice. As uh, people would conquer countries, they would take their gods, destroy them, and then they would erect in in the the other people's gods' place their new god, and it was kind of like the ultimate ninner-ninner. Our god's bigger than your god is. And one of the most famous ninner-ninners is the Dome of the Rock which now sits on the Temple Mount, a Temple Mount that was purchased by David, King David of Israel, for the worship of Yahweh, where Solomon built the first temple, and then later Zerubbabel reconstructed the second temple after the first one was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Later, that same Temple Mount and the same temple was majorly remodeled by Herod the Great, and he was the one who basically took Zerubbabel's pathetic temple and turned it into this huge, huge edifice and increased the Temple Mount and made it incredibly beautiful. But now, standing in that place is this Dome of the Rock to a pagan god, and it is a mockery to the Jews even to this day. And as we look at our heritage, we will find out that this sort of thing happens all the time to the true God, to Christianity, to the God that we worship. The world is very interested in removing God from everything that they possibly can. I'm surprised that our money still says, in God we trust. Even though it's a lie, it's still on our money. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. And as you look at even the holidays we, we celebrate as Christians, for instance, Easter, Easter is a great day. Easter is that day we celebrate that Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the world, who was buried and then later rose again on the third day. That is Easter Sunday, but now it has been reduced to spring and flowers, and Easter bunnies, and eggs, and candy. But where is Jesus, God incarnate, risen from the dead? The world has basically sucked the blood right out of the meaning of Easter, has scalped it. And that's what's happened with Christmas Christmas, the great celebration of God becoming man, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, the one 
in whom all the governments would rest upon his shoulder. The one who was going forth from long ago, even from the days of eternity, born at Bethlehem, that child, the Savior and Redeemer of mankind, has been replaced with Santa Claus. Lights, trees, decoration, the best time of the year to make money. Presents and all sorts of things, which in and of themselves are not wrong, But the real meaning of Christmas has been cloaked in all of this worldly stuff that has been added on. And that is exactly what's happening with Thanksgiving. What's neat is, is Thanksgiving still appears on the calendar. And even if you go to the public schools and, you know, they've done the best they can to try and, you know, suck the life out of Thanksgiving. But at least they call it Thanksgiving. And at least they tell the kids, you know, oh, I want you to know there was a bunch of pilgrims who landed in the country and they had a big feast with the Indians and they were thankful. And, you know, that's, that's pretty good. The problem is, is there's one critical thing missing. There is one critical thing missing in Thanksgiving. Can you know what it is? It's God. It's God. I mean, we aren't giving thanks to Turkey or to blessings or to prosperity or wealth. No, those are the things we give thanks for to God. God is the true person we need to give thanks to. He is the true and only true object of our thanks. Because all good things come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, according to James 1.17. It is not enough to be thankful. We must be thankful to God. You know, you hear people say things like, oh, even unbelievers, we need to pray about this. I always want to ask, who are you going to pray to? Tell me about him. And see, prayer has just been become, oh, we need to pray as if prayer was some sort of like of mystical pixie dust that we threw on something to fix it. It's not. You hear people say, oh, there's power in prayer. No, there's not. There is power in the God we pray to. And if you don't mean that, then prayer means nothing. If you don't mean there is power in the God I pray to, then you're just praying for praying. I Buddhists pray. But their prayer doesn't do anything. You hear people say, oh, we need to have faith. And I want to say, in what? In what? I mean, people have faith in a lot of things. But the only faith that's powerful is faith in God. That, people, is the kind of faith we need to have. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is with thanks. We're living in a world where all of the critical things we are supposed to do, pray, have faith, give thanks, celebrations of the greatest days in the history of the world, they've sucked God out of all of them. And that is why we're looking at Psalm 136 today. We want to get God back into thanksgiving. We want to remind ourselves that the reason the pilgrims came over as they were Puritans who couldn't handle the state telling them how to worship. And so they came here to set up 
a country where they could worship and not be told how to do it. They came here because there would be a separation between church and state, which meant the church wouldn't tell them how to worship, not that they couldn't ever mention God around the state. And those people came and they were thankful when they ate with those Indians to God. And that's what Psalm 136 is all about. We're going to focus on the last four verses, but I need to give you a little bit of introduction to this psalm because uh, so much of it is good. We're actually going to kind of survey the whole thing, but we'll look at the end as kind of the punchline of the whole business. Psalm 136 is a psalm that is at the end of what is called the Hillel. The Hillel is a group of psalms, Psalms 120 to 136, that the Jews would say at different occasions. And the last psalm of the Hillel is the great Hillel, which is Psalm 136. It is the end, the kicker to the great Hillel. Hillel means praise. It is the word we get hallelujah from. Hallelujah is Hillel with the shortened form of Yahweh stuck at the end. Hallelujah. Hallelujah is what it is. Give praise to God. And Psalm 36 is unique because it repeats the same line in every single verse. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Very unusual. Very unusual. It has a very unique structure. It was probably structured this way because the people would read it in response. The priest or the Levite or the rabbi would stand up front. He would read the first line and the congregation would say, For his loving kindness is everlasting. And so let's just try that right now. As I read these first three verses, you say my version His loving kindness is everlasting. And I will read the first line. We'll see how it was probably written to read. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Now that would kind of drive the point home, wouldn't it? After 26 verses, you'd begin to think, there's something about God I need to know. His loving kindness is everlasting. And then there's three imperatives here in these first three verses. Give thanks. And in the Hebrew, there's a couple different ways you can tell people to do something. You know, give them commands. One is, you know, just a regular command, do this. One of them is intensive command, you know, really do this. And this one here is a causative command, a hifil causative, which means this. You are to cause yourself to give thanks to God. And if you don't, you're sinning. That's what these three phrases, give thanks, give thanks, give thanks, mean. And notice that each one of these give thanks is designated by who we are to give thanks to. Give thanks literally means to throw out a confession of praise towards. We are to throw out a confession of praise to God, is what verses 1, 2, and 3 say. 
And he gives us these three designations for God. Look at the first one. He says, give thanks. Here's the first object of our thanks. The Lord. Now, you see, whenever you, you look in your Bible, and most Bibles are this way, you'll see Lord in all capital letters. That is the word Yahweh in the Hebrew. That is the name that Moses received from God in Exodus 3.14 when God was speaking to him from the burning bush and Moses, who's trying to get out of having to go back to, or, you know, go back to Egypt, said, well, well, who should I say sent me? And you remember what God said? God said, tell them that I am the eternally existing one sent you. And this in the Hebrew is Yah Hey Yod Hey, what the what the the Jews um, entitled the unutterable four-letter name, the ineffable tetragrammaton is the big word for it. That's a good word. And they would never say this name, but that is the name that we are to give thanks to. Give thanks. To Yahweh. And then it gives a reason. Look at what the text says. For he is good. Now the entire remember, the, the entire, the, the entire um, rest of the psalm reminds us of, that, of the things we are to remember so that we can know why God is good. The whole rest of the psalm gives us reasons why God is good. And so this is kind of the tip of the iceberg. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and then two more lines, and then all these reasons why we know he's good, in addition to his loving kindness is everlasting. You remember what Jesus said when he was talking to the rich man who came to him and said, um, teacher, what, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Do you remember what Jesus told him? Why, why do you call me good? You know, what do you know about good? He says, listen, there is only one who is good. And who is that? That's God. God is the only one who's really good. Now, you and I may be able to find somebody who's more of a sinner than we are. And we may be able to swell up our heads by saying, well, at least I'm not like that person. I mean, this guy, you know, my neighbor, man, you should see him. He's way more sinful than me. The guy I work with, then he's really wretched, but I'm pretty good. And in comparison to other people's, you may think you're good, but really you aren't. And we're going to see why that is in a little bit. Compared to God, we are evil and wicked and totally depraved. A.W. Tozer, in his classic work, The Knowledge of the Holy, said this about God's divine goodness. He said this, Divine goodness is one of God's attributes. It is self-caused, infinite, perfect, and eternal. Since God is immutable, he, ever, he never varies in the intensity of his loving kindness. He has never been kinder than he now is. Nor will he ever be less kind. He is no respecter of persons, but makes his sun to shine on the evil as well as the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The cause of goodness is in himself. The recipients of his goodness are all his beneficiaries without merit and without recompense. End quote. That is a great statement. 
God doesn't become more good and less good. He isn't sometimes good and then sometimes not too good. He's always good. He is good. He is infinitely good to creatures like us who deserve no goodness at all. And this is why we need to give thanks to God. He is infinitely good. Even to creatures who don't deserve it. Now we're going to find out some specific reasons, but... I just want to encourage you. You know, a lot of times we have trials in our lives. We have things we have to suffer. Uh, I just found out last night that a friend of ours has come down with this terrible disease. And I just think to myself, this is just, it is so terrible to have to go through some sort of sickness like that. And so often we can look at all the things that are wicked in the world, all the things that are happening to us, all the bad situations, and we can be thinking to ourselves, God is sovereign. God is in control. The earth is wicked. Men are wicked. I am hurting. Therefore, God is not good. But that is a flaw. It's a flaw because of several reasons. First, it's a whole negative attitude. You know, there are some people who look at things and they look at things like the glass is half empty instead of half full. Someone said, two men stand looking out through the bars. One sees the mud, the other the stars. Now, are you a mud person? I mean, do you look at things and all you see is the mud? Someone else said, two men stood looking at a rose bush and one cursed God for putting thorns among the roses. The other blessed God for putting roses among the thorns. You see, so often we get this negative mindset and pretty soon everything is negative. And we need to remember that the God that we serve is a good God. Romans 8.28 is one of the classic texts which describe something we all need to keep in mind. God causes all things to work for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And let me just explain what that means in case it's not clear. What that means is, is that God takes everything good in your life and uses it for your good. And what that means is God takes everything bad in your life and uses it for good, which means he takes all things in your life and uses them for good. That is why God is so good. And even though right now you may not understand how God is using this or that or the other thing for good, he is using it for good. And just because you and your sin-cursed pea-brain finiteness don't know why, that doesn't mean God doesn't know why. And that is why we need to praise God and thank Him because He is good. He is the Lord who is good. Now the second designation, just so we don't miss who we're supposed to give thanks to, is in verse 2. Give thanks to the God of gods for His loving kindness is everlasting. This is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim of Elohims is literally what it is. Now, most of us don't know why this little word is significant. This word has a good ending on it, this little aim ending. You know, in the Hebrew, whenever you want to make something plural, you throw on im on the end of it, a masculine plural. For instance, you have one cherub and two cherubim, and you have one seraph and two seraphim. Yeah, see, that is Hebrew. Now you know Hebrew. 
That's all there is to know. But what's neat about this word here is God is called Elohim. But you think, wait a second, that doesn't seem right. That sounds like there's more than one God. That is interesting, isn't it? And what else is interesting is in the Hebrew, whenever you have that im ending on the end of the word, you always use plural verbs and plural grammar to go along with it. Every Hebrew word matches itself. So everything's either masculine, plural, or whatever, except when this word is used of God. When this word is used of God, then all singulars are used with it. Isn't that interesting? It violates Hebrew grammar every time Elohim is used of God. And it tells us something very important about God. God is a composite unity. What that means is, is he is like an orange, which you have one orange, but yet that orange has many segments in a rhyme. He is a composite unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what God is. Do you remember early on in Genesis? Um, it uses, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. But then in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 26, um, God, speaking to God, says, Let us make man in our own image. What is that? I mean, what is, why, why doesn't he just say, let me make God in my image, or I will make man in my image, or whatever. Why does he use this us and our type of thing? That is really interesting. Later on, in chapter 3, verse 22, after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, God, speaking to God, says, Man has become like one of us knowing good and evil. And if you were to go to the Tower of Babel, the same thing happened. You know, where he says, huh, man has, you know, become like one of us, and nothing that he determines to do will be impossible for him. So how is it that God is an us and yet one God? Because he is the composite of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, one essence. And that is what the doctrine of the Trinity is. You see, everyone worships a God. Oh, you may not call it a God. It may be your job. It may be your hobby. It may be football or it may be whatever. But everyone worships a God. And whatever you give to something else that is rightly due the real God, that becomes your God. That is your idol. That is what you worship. But here we are to give thanks to the God of all the little gods, the ultimate God, singular, of all the gods, plural. Now, the third designation here in verse 3, it says, Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Now, notice notice how in verse 1, where it says Lord, that's in capitals. And then in verse 3, it's in small case letters. Now, why is that? Because this word is not Yahweh, this word is Adonai. This is Adonai of Adonais here. Adonai means Lord, Father, Master. It, it, it talks about the might and authority of God. 
And all three of these designations were probably plucked from Deuteronomy 10.17, where Moses says this, For the Lord your God, Lord there is the first title, is the God of gods, second title, and the Lord of lords, third title, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. So the introduction to this psalm clearly tells us what we are to do, give thanks, and who we are to give thanks to. God, the Lord, the God of gods, the Lord of lords. Now, we get into this phrase, because his loving kindness is everlasting or endures forever, or whatever your version reads. The King James says his mercy endures forever. The NIV says his love endures forever. The Revised Standard Version translates it, his steadfast loves endures forever. And the NASB says his loving kindness is everlasting. So what is the difference? Why the difference there? Well, the word loving kindness is major. I mean, it is a major theological term. It is the Hebrew word hesed. And it And different people have written entire doctrinal theses on this one word. And, you know, one guy will write this huge thesis and say, the word basically means this, and everybody goes, you're right. And then somebody else will come and study it from a different angle and say, no, it means this. And everybody says, you're right, too. And then this guy will write this other huge book on it, and then he's like, you're right, too. And you can see how this word has this huge, huge breadth to it. Um, It's kind of a a, a combination of God's goodness and his kindness and his grace and his love and his mercy and his covenant faithfulness all just kind of stuck into one word, chesed, his loving kindness, his mercy, whatever. According to Brown Drivers Briggs, Hebrew lexicon, this word means this. It means God's loving kindness, favor, mercy, or goodness extended to us that we might be preserved from death, redeemed from enemies, redeemed from sin, quickened to spiritual life, and blessed because of the covenant faithfulness of God. And this psalm repeats over and over and over and over and over and over that God's chesed, his loving kindness, is everlasting. And people, that is something to be thankful for. What that means is, is because God is eternal, He ever lives to bless with perfect blessing those who are His. He's not going to say, oh man, you know, after a couple million zillion years in heaven, hey, I've run out. I'm going to have to throw you into the lake of fire. I'm out of goodness. No. God is the one who never runs out of loving kindness. It is everlasting. It endures forever. So now that we understand what we are to do, give thanks, and the true object of our thanks, which is God, the Lord of Lords, Lord, whatever you want to call Him, we are now moving into the body of the psalm, verses 4 through 22. And in the body of the psalm, we have basically three different sections laid out for us. The first section talks about God's creative might, 
his creative genius, what he has done to create the world in which we live in. Look at the first lines, starting in verse 4. To him who alone does great wonders, verse 5. To him who made the heavens with skill, verse 6. To him who spread the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights, the sun to rule by day, and the moon and the stars to rule by night. You see, men cannot create. You know, you have, you know, the eccentric artist saying, oh, look at my masterpiece that I've created. But he didn't do it. He didn't do it. He recreated something God already created. You see, men only take the raw materials that God created and they mess with them. You see, God created all the elements. When you look at your TV, you need to remember that God made everything in that TV. He made everything you see here in this building. All men take what God has made and they melt it down and cut it up and chop it up and mold it and pressurize it and separate it and whatever. But they can only manipulate what God has created. Everything has been created by God. He is the creator of heavens and earth. And that is why in the Ten Commandments, when it's talking about the Fourth Commandment to keep the Sabbath, it says in Exodus 20:11, "In six days, the Lord God made the heavens and the earth and all they contain." God is the Creator. And you know, you need to think about this. So often we, we, we get so complacent. Because we live in a world that we're so used to, we forget that, you know, God did a pretty good job. I mean, he could have made the earth flat with one color of dirt. Rivers, six feet across every 300 yards. And so if you want to drink, you can go 300 yards this way or 300 yards that way. There's no warm climate. There's no cold climate. There's just flat Earth, one color of dirt, no rocks, just medium-grade soil. And we could grow the one kind of plant that God used, which gave us this one kind of fruit, and that was all we had to eat. And we just lived off of that one plant and that one earth. And, and, and that's all we had. When you looked up into the sky at nighttime, you wouldn't see stars in the moon. you just black. Why have all that moon? Yeah, there wouldn't be any oceans. There's just rivers that would come up and then go, you know, like parallel lines in the earth and then disappear again at the other end or whatever. There would be no comets. There would be no stars, no meteorites. There would just be plain. God could have done that and we could have survived and that would have been okay. But instead, God created this incredible heavenly host of different stars and nebulas and, and, and the moons and the planets and the orbits and just incredible complexity. Why? Because he is good and his loving kindness is everlasting. And we need to give thanks that we have more than one kind of food to eat, that we have mountains and we have oceans and we have rivers and we have cold places and hot places and fat places and lumpy places. God has given us this incredible variety and we just live in this earth and just say so. We need to give thanks to God, the God of creation, because his loving kindness is everlasting. 
Then if you were to look down in verses 10 through 16, we find something else about God, and that is this. Look at verse 10. To him who smote the Egyptians and their firstborn, and brought Israel out from their midst, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea asunder, and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, to him who led his people through the wilderness. And just stop there. What is all this about? This is about redemption. That's what this is about. This is about God redeeming people from bondage. And even though we are in Israel, we weren't under bondage, yet this whole deliverance from Egypt is stated over and over again in the scripture as redemption, to redeem, to ransom. Recently I was teaching the the Awana kids and I was trying to tell them about what ransom was. And I'll use the same illustration with you so you can understand too. Um, And that is this. I told them, I said, what if somebody kidnapped you and they call up your mom and dad and they say, I'll give you your kid back if you give me what? Some money. I said, what is that money called? That money's called the ransom money. God does the same thing for us. Sin has caused us to be in bondage to sin. And we need ransomed. And the only thing that could pay the incredible price to redeem a person would be another person, a perfect person, a perfect willing person. And so Jesus came to earth and offered himself as a ransom for us, that we might be redeemed from the bondage of sin. And people, this is why we need to give thanks to God, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Ephesians 1.3, Paul writes, In Him we have redemption, that is in Christ, redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. We have redemption in Christ. In Galatians 3.13, Paul says that Christ also redeemed us from the curse of the law. Isn't that great that we don't have to function under the curse of the law anymore? I mean, just think if every time our country sinned that we were attacked by enemies, suffered plague, people wiped out by the thousands. When Paul was exhorting the Colossians in Colossians Chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, he said this, We should be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is something to be thankful for. Peter said it this way. After he exhorted his readers to obey, he said this in 1 Peter 1, 17-19. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay upon the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed 
with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ purchased you with the infinite blood of his own self. He offered himself up for you and became a curse for you and received your sins upon him. And are you thankful for that? Are you just glad you're saved? Are you glad to yourself you're saved? Are you just glad to glad that you're saved? Or are you thankful to God that he has redeemed you? Then in verses 17 through 22, look there. After he talks about giving thanks for God of creation and God the Redeemer, he says in verses 16 through 22, to him who led, or, or verse 17, to him who smote great kings and slew mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, even a heritage to Israel his servant. And you're thinking to yourself, hey man, I don't even know Og. You know, how, how can I be thankful for that? Well, the whole picture here is this, that God took Israel's worst enemies and defeated them. That is the picture here we get of God. God is one who defeats the enemies of his people. Now, as a Christian, do you have any enemies? Sure. And what are your three greatest enemies? They are these Satan, sin, and death. Those three enemies are the greatest enemies of mankind. And what's great about it is that Christ defeated Satan. He first defe defeated him in the wilderness when after 40 days of being tempted, he did not succumb. So he defeated him in that he resisted temptation. Then he defeated him as he lived a life on earth and he did nothing but good. He healed the sick and cast out demons and fed multitudes. And you know why he did that? Because he was proving that he was a better king than Satan was. He was a better God of this world than Satan was. He was showing the angelic realm and men that I am the Messiah. I am the one worthy to receive glory and honor and dominion. And then finally, he, de he defeated him on the cross. When he put his life on the block and gave his life to purchase us from the consequences of our sin, which is death, so that through him we could have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And this is why, people, his loving kindness needs to be praised because indeed it is everlasting. Now, having said that, that is the introduction to what we're going to look at. Look at verses 23 to 26. We read, Who remembered us in our low estate, for his loving kindness is everlasting, and has rescued us from our adversaries, for his loving kindness is everlasting, who gives food to all flesh, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, what's interesting about this is in these first three verses, right towards the end, I skipped the last one on purpose. We'll get there in a minute. There's, there's, there's this little word there that doesn't appear anywhere else in the psalm. 
There's a switch here in, in from the whole preceding context. And when you get down to these verse 23, 24, and 25, there is a little two-letter word that appears that tells us something very good is happening. And that is the word us. Us. Notice what it says, who remembered us and has rescued us. That is so great. That is so great. He gives food to who? To us. That is the present blessing of God. Sure, he did created things back then. Sure, he rescued the Israelites back then. Sure, he defeated those enemies of Israel back then, but now, for us today, we need to give thanks to him for three reasons. Because he remembered us in our lowest state. The word lowest state here means lowland. Shvela. It is low life. He remembered us when we were low lives. Basically what it says. God remembered you when you were very corrupt and wicked. So often we forget what sin has done to us. Thomas Watson in his book, The Mischief of Sin spends 52 pages explaining how sin has brought us low as a human race. He said at one point this, Sin first tempts and then damns. It is a fox and then a lion. Sin does as Jael did to Sisera. She gave him milk, but then she brought him low. She reached out her hand for the tent peg and in her right hand for the workman's hammer. Then she struck Sisera. She smashed his head and she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed. He fell, he lay, and where he bowed, there he fell dead. Sin first brings us pleasure, which charms and delights the senses. And then comes the nail and hammer, end quote. People, have you ever thought you were pretty good? I mean, I've had people sit across the desk from me and say, you know, I'm a good person. I'm not the person you want to say that to. (laughs) Because I know better. So often we look at ourselves, you're good compared to who? To the guy down the street? Let's Let's start comparing to God. This is what the scriptures say, that the thoughts and intentions of men's heart are only evil continuously, Genesis 6-5. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is desperately, incurably sick above all else. Job 15.16 talks about man as being detestable and corrupt and one who drinks iniquity like water. In Jeremiah 13.23, Jeremiah says, Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin or the leopard his spots? No. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In Ecclesiastes 7.20 it says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and does not sin. Paul gives us the whole dump truck in Romans 3.10-12 when he says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And so don't tell me you're good because you're not. None of us are good. Compared to God, we're just in desperate need. But what's incredible is that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. God came to earth to die for us, and he died the just for the unjust. To bring us to God, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, according to 1 Peter 3. People, we need to thank God that he has redeemed us. Because so often we think, oh yes, you know, um, you know, salvation is like men floating out at sea. And you know, we need to throw the life ring out to them so those men can grab that life ring of grace and be saved. No, no. I mean, it's an interesting story. It's just not biblical. Ephesians chapter 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You aren't just floating on the surface. You aren't treading water. You're at the bottom, man. You're sunken down there. You're dead. The crabs are eating you and they're having a feast. And it isn't until God comes and floats you to the surface by His grace and resuscitates you by His Spirit and illumines your mind and gives you grace and faith and mercy and love and grants you repentance leading to salvation that you can even begin to respond to God. And then he saves you. And this is why it is so incredible that he remembered us in our lowest state. That is God's mercy. And then our, his grace is that he rescued us from our adversaries. And we already saw what those adversaries were. Those adversaries are sin and Satan and death. And he saves us from that. And that's why we are to praise him. Because his loving kindness is everlasting. Paul put it this way, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to give thanks. And finally, he gives the last thing, who gives food to all flesh. Everything you eat is from God. When you have Thanksgiving this year, and you have that big feast, and you eat as much as you can, and three bites more... And then maybe you have to go to the in-laws and do it again. And then you have to eat the, the leftovers all week. You have to suffer through the leftovers. You need to remember every bite of food you've ever put in your mouth is from God. It's not from your job. It's not from your work. It's not from your ingenuity. And it's not from Ralph's and Vaughn's. It's from God. He gives us that food. He is the one, according to Isaiah 55, furnishes seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And what should be our response to God saving us from our lowest state, from rescuing us from our adversaries, from giving us all of our food? Verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven, a phrase which only appears here in all the Psalms, the God of heaven, for his loving kindness is everlasting. People, this Thanksgiving, don't let the world suck God out of your Thanksgiving. Make sure that you give thanks to God as the pilgrims did several hundred years ago because his loving kindness is everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and pray that we would be a thankful people. Now, Father, you would cause us to be focused on you this Thanksgiving to give you praise and honor for all that you have given and done for us. Father, we are thankful that we have so many good things. May we not take them for granted, but Father, may we be spurred on by them to give you thanks. Father, we praise your name for your loving kindness is everlasting. Amen.